So, open your Bibles, please, to James 1, and we'll get there soon enough. Uh, We'll spend some time there, definitely. As you find that, some of you are aware of uh, the name Peter Hubbard. He's actually spoken here uh, on an occasion, and uh, the occasion he spoke on was his book. It was his dissertation turned into a book uh, called Love into Light, and I find in that book a compelling yet sad illustration. Uh, but helpful in launching us in a topic that isn't very enjoyable, right? We've got to have this conversation. And so I want to share with you right from Peter Hubbard's pen. He's, he writes about an email from a church member there in Greenville, a female church member that was struggling with same-sex attraction. And these are her words. I've been struggling with it my entire life. For the longest time, I denied it to myself and certainly did not want to come clean to anyone about it. Several months ago, I admitted my struggle to some family and close friends, and they have all been so wonderful and encouraging, but they often don't know how to really help. I've been trying to be wise in who I tell because I don't know who will criticize me or who will try to help. It's hard. It's looked down upon so badly, which I guess is fair because it's it's an unnatural thing, but it really stinks because I need help. I need people who will be behind me, supporting me with godly counsel so that I can make it out of this mess. I have only been a true believer for a little over a year now, so I am just beginning my walk with the Lord. I just want to encourage you to go for it. There is such a need in this area because people in the church don't know how to deal with the issue. Homosexuality is just not talked about in the church. So it made me think that I was the only one struggling through same-sex attraction. This is a horrible place to be, thinking that you are the only one. Please help my other brothers and sisters who may be struggling with the same things. Jesus has saved my soul and has taken my burdens away. I have peace and contentment in Christ, and they need to know that they too can have this, and the way they know this is through the body of Christ. But that's, those are the words of a lady in Peter Hubbard's church to Peter when he was hesitantly starting this series, this sermon series at North Hills Community. I have to admit, um, I love the opportunity to be able to participate in this conference just sitting down and learning. Uh, but when I was asked to maybe send a couple topics um, for workshops, I sent, I sent a, a list. And when it came back, I was, I was crestfallen that this was one of them. Um, I'm ready to talk about it, but I don't enjoy it. And, uh, and I, to be honest, I'll just put my cards on the table. I, I don't, this isn't one of my struggles. I have my struggles, and we're going to talk about that. So do you. Um, so to pull my chair up to this one is not exciting to me, except that I've seen the gospel of Jesus Christ totally give freedom and hope and peace to people that it is their struggle. Okay? Um, as a matter of fact, it's not just for church leaders to get into this conversation. The culture is forcing it on our entire church family, right? Um, just like we've had our whatever you've done for many series about COVID. I just did one in September about time to come back. You know, I, I called the series more or less. And, uh, um, you know, we have those series and we have series on, on other cultural issues that come down, social issues. But have, have we done this one yet? You have to. You have to get your church conversant with this 
because they'll either freeze up or blow up in the face of it when, they, when, when, it, when it confronts them. And so that's what my associate pastor and I chose to do uh, right before COVID, actually. We did, we did a series to our church family. We called it Clarity Over Chaos. And we, it's a biblical series on gender and sexuality. And we made it about uh, six or seven messages long and then had a Rosario Butterfield uh, deal at the end. And then we had a Q&A. And, uh, we, and we told the church, we're going to have this conversation. As much as we don't want to have it, you probably don't want to hear it, but you need to. And in my first message, I, I argued for them why we're going to have this series. And I, I brought up these, these reasons to the congregation. And I would encourage you, if you haven't discussed this with your congregation, you need to, for these reasons. First of all, there's cultural pressure right now. Uh, you can't watch a sporting event. You can't watch the Olympics. You can't watch um, entertainment award shows, which that's good. Don't watch them. Anyway, you have another reason. You can't watch political speeches without getting the innuendo on it. Uh, it's everywhere. There's cultural pressure. Every single day we're being told to accept this and not in any way conflict with it. You have evangelical compromise is another reason. And uh, there are inroads. Um, there are people that have, uh, uh, in the woke culture, are, are splintering off of even um, a broader organization like the Gospel Coalition. There's people splintering off from them, okay, on definitions. You have the issue of scriptural clarity. You know, the scriptures are absolutely clear when it comes to the divine design of creation, uh, of two genders, of sexuality, the whole deal. We have no lack of clarity here. Uh, you have the what I call the chaos crescendo, which means um, there, as everything is bad in Romans 1, there's a, there's, a, there's a moving trajectory in Romans 1 that as bad as things are, they're going to still get worse. They're going to still get worse. They're going to still get worse. To, where, to the point where even the cosmos themselves are groaning because of the impact of sin and wanting to see the redemption come. Um, and in a very real sense, as bad as things are right now in this area, these are the best of times compared to the future. It's going to get darker. You have the conscience cry, which is another reason to have this conversation with your congregations. By conscience cry, I mean, look at the number of suicides. It's the secular, secular authorities that are reporting on the suicides, especially of those that have gone through um, surgery and therapies to change their presentation. Uh, their gender presentation and the suicide rate is extremely high. And by the way, there are more and more and more extremes coming, not just surgeries that make you cosmetically look and sound like the other gender, but even, even um, going to further uh, abuse of the body and perversion. You have the isolation crisis. It's another reason you need to have this conversation, and this is talking to us. We don't know how to talk about it. So we either chase these people away if they're struggling, or we ourselves hide away. So these are the reasons I wanted to have a conversation like this with our church family. God has given us timeless design and gender and, and as image bearers, um, and our clarity confronts the cultural constructs that are thrown at us as not theory, but as fact. Genesis 1 and 2, for example, is clear. Romans 1 is clear. Uh, Jeremiah 1 is clear that he was a he even before he was formed. Okay? Um, he had an assigned gender. So we need to learn definitions and teach them to our church family. Have this conversation theologically first. 
And, and I've just got to say, you, you're going to have to read on this. You're going to have to study on it. I told my congregation, I read until I started seeing things repeat. <laughs> and then I backed out and took what I'm, I know from Scripture and made it answer what, what I was starting to see repeats on uh, from the culture. And uh, I was helped by a bunch of books that I, I'll draw your attention to at the end. Um, but what it does is, is if you take on this issue of gender and sexuality, at some point in this series, you have to address the fact that brings us into room three today. What about not just the dynamic of, of same-sex attraction, what about when a professing Christian, a truly regenerated person, says, I'm struggling with it? Now, I don't know how many are in this room right now. I guarantee there's people in this room that have struggled or are struggling with same-sex attraction. I'm not asking how long you've been in the ministry or how long you've been active at your church, but um, it, it it would some of you aren't surprised because you do struggle with this or have struggled. Um, others of you have counseled people that they're the last people in the world you think would ever struggle with this. I've uh, I've counseled I've counseled people, um, even even men in ministry who have struggled. They're not given into it, haven't. They're married, have kids, struggle. I've counseled others, and again, another pastor who'd been sexually abused as, uh, by a sibling as a young man. And, uh, and that created something of curiosity in, 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 in his own heart. And, and he was in the fight. Just because someone struggles with it or, uh, or, or, or knows the battle too well doesn't mean they're given into it. Doesn't mean. But I want to say to you, if that's your struggle, I got some good news for you today. All right? And your churches should have some good news for you today. Have this conversation with your church. And I want to take you through what I said on that particular study to my congregation. I wanted to take people that didn't go to seminary in our church. You know, These are people that work at the bank, work at Ford or whatever, um, work as lawyers. And I said, let's just all get our, our glossary in line here. What does Scripture say? And this is the language we're going to speak around here because my very next message after this one it was the final message in this series, and it was simply called Be the Lighthouse. Be the Lighthouse. And uh, be ready to not just respond to these people as you meet them day to day or even as they come to church, but I think we need to even pursue them. Okay? Be nice. Pursue them. Be interested. Lean into their interest because you have some good news for them as well. So I want to start, if we're going to answer the question, what about the battle of same-sex uh, attraction in professing Christians. What do we have to do? Well, I think we need to start with definitions, okay? And I want to start with the definition of the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, how they define, and I'm just doing, I'm just throwing this out here now, we're back in a classroom mode. How do they define same-sex orientation? That's the word they use, orientation. And here's their definition. It's an enduring pattern of sexual attraction giving birth to a sense of identity Related behaviors and community. I'm going to read that again. Again, it will be on recording. An enduring pattern of sexual attraction giving birth to a sense of identity, (coughs) related behaviors, and community. In other words, I look at myself and I see this as who I am. Because this is who I am, I'm going to now do what I do, my behaviors. And because I see myself as being this and doing this, I'm going to go into community with others who are like this as well. Okay, That's their definition. And, and, and Lambert pulls that out in his excellent book. I'm going to recommend to you in a moment. 
but notice in the in the word and in the definition, there's two there's two phrases you need to grab a hold of. It's the word orientation, and it's the word attraction. Because I find it interesting, even though that's a secular definition of of same sex attraction, same sex uh, orientation. It's a secular definition, but it already now is facing us towards what we're going to see in James chapter 1. I can fight them on the nuances of the words they're choosing, or I can say, we'll work with that. Let's go to James. Okay? And so I want to do that with the words orientation and attraction. Because what that does is that brings us now to this whole topic of desire. Right? Epithumia. And when we talk about desire or epithumia, are we talking merely about an emotional desire? Are we talking merely about a romantic desire, a sexual desire? What do we got going here? It's Rosario Butterfield, who you know is, uh, is one, the gospel has, had rescued her, right? Out of this whole lesbian, very radical lesbian lifestyle through the ministry of an old Presbyterian couple. You've read the book, and their use of hospitality for the sake of the gospel. And, and, and she's in, and she's all in, okay? And uh, she makes this statement, and Lambert latches onto this too in his book. She says this word orientation uh, can only lead in one, into one biblical trajectory, and it's the word flesh. When we talk about desire, we have to understand that in the context of flesh, all right? Listen to Heath Lambert, and, and this is from his book that he wrote with Denny Burke, Um, on, on this topic. He says, A person is not absolved of an immoral sexual desire simply because it seems to follow an enduring pattern or orientation. The enduring nature of same sex desire is an indication not that God approves such desire, but that we are intractably sinful apart from grace. Or to use the word that Dr. Dorn used earlier, we're broken. Okay, we're broken. You know, before this was as big of a topic as it was, when I was, uh, had the joy of teaching at Virginia Beach, I'd ask my students, um, you know, suppose they find a gene someday. You know, it's, it's fun with seminary students. Suppose we, they find a gene today, they can point at it, say, this is it, this is it. And it means for sure that you're going to be a bank robber. <laughs> okay. And, 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 and they want to get a nod on that, you know, and, and then I know where it's going. It's going to, what about the homosexual? It, it, it's, a, it's determinative. If you have this gene, I'm pointing it, I'm identifying it. I'm not saying somewhere over there. It's right, it's this one. And they would take it to this extreme of, of even homosexuality. What does that mean? Does that remove any responsibility? I say, oh, no, no, not at all. Actually, it makes my point even more that I see in Romans 1. We are that broken. Creation is broken, okay? Now, I don't... We can, there's going to be a lot of desire forever and ever if they're finite gene. Uh, they see orientation in the brain of stuff, but it's not concrete in my mind. Let me, let me point out something else. This one from um, John Street and uh, uh, Daniel Kirk, if I can get this to go. Same-sex attraction feels natural for the same reason many other sins feel natural, like greed, envy, and gossip. It doesn't need to be learned, nor does it need to be consciously chosen. It is one of the natural capacities of the, of the idolatrous heart of man that craves and seeks satisfaction in things other than God. You're hearing there the language of Paul in Romans 1, twice, verse 22 and 25, 
they exchange. They exchange the creator for something else. Okay, let me give you another one here. This is from Ed Welch. Most sin works on a level where we do not feel that we self-consciously choose it. That's an interesting, truthful statement. To use Old Testament language, our sin can be, quote-unquote, unintentional, but that does not make us less responsible. Let me give you another one. This one's from Andrew Walker. I, I found his book very helpful as well, God and the Transgender Debate. And I was glad to see it at the ACBC conference. They were, they were encouraging you to read this too on this topic. He writes, Inside every heart, there's a war. And the heart is both the victim and the culprit. Man, underline the screen there. Why? Because every person's heart is inhabited by sinful desires and produces sinful desires. There is an ongoing battle within the heart in which unhelpful desires wage war with our conscience. He's absolutely right. Now I want to give you another quote. I'm going to just give a little asterisk on it. Uh, it's by Sam Albury with the Gospel Coalition. I think he's in Britain. And, and you, just because I'm putting one of his quotes on the board doesn't mean I'd put all of them on there. But I found his little book, Is God Anti-Gay, um, provocative in a good way. He struggles. He's a single guy, single Christian, struggles with same-sex attraction. All right? And so it was interesting to read his book for that reason. Um, and I found some helpful observations from his perspective. Remember, I, I don't relate to this one myself. I got my own, and we're going to talk about, well, I'm not going to tell you what mine are, but uh, we're going to talk about the fact that we all struggle. But he says this. He's, he does struggle with it. The kind of sexual attractions I experience are not fundamental to my identity. I like that he says that. They are part of what I feel, but are not who I am in a fundamental sense. I am far more than my sexuality. Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God has made me. I find that helpful. I find that helpful. So here's, here's where I think we need to go to start our conversation. Remember, I'm, I'm talking to you as I talked to our church congregation. All right? They're not MDiv students. I want to know, where do we start? Well, I think we need to start with what the Bible says about any kind of temptation. Shouldn't we go there first? Because who says that same-sex attraction gets the extra boost of being worse than other temptations? The human heart is a human heart. So all of a sudden, it gets a little easy to figure out where we have to start. We have to start with the Christian's heart. And so here's what I want to do. Uh, your Bible is open to James 1. Of course, we could start in, James cha- or in Romans chapter 1 and go from verse 18 through uh, 30, I think it goes to 33. We could go there and spend our time there, and we will come back to that. Um, you have the God gave them over, God gave them over, delivered them over, and you have uh, general immorality, then you have sexual perversion, and then you have um, uh, no, no stops at all in any direction of evil. It's going, and, and then if that's not bad enough, they not only are suppressing the truth of God early on in that text, but by the end, they're persecuting those who disagree. Okay? We could go to Romans chapter 1 and verse 7 too, um, but I want to go to James 1. Here in James 1, uh, who's writing this? This is our Lord's brother, half-brother. Um, his next oldest brother, I believe he came to faith after the resurrection, and his brother paid him a visit. And uh, suddenly, 
All the times he heard his brother give the Sermon on the Mount, suddenly it made sense. And, and he, there's nearly 20 inferences in this, these five chapters to the Sermon on the Mount of his older brother. Fascinating study. Okay? Uh, James, would, would, uh, James had a nickname, in, according to church tradition, Old Camel Knees is what they called him because he prayed. He prayed for those that persecuted him. He was thrown from the high point on the temple, according to tradition. He survived the fall, and the crowd was so so mad and so angry at him and his holiness and his love and grace towards him that they ran down there and finished him off by beating him with clubs. His, his righteous life, his Christ-likeness, which is like saying your brother-likeness, in a sense, was, was profound. I love what he writes here. What he writes to his scattered church, they left Jerusalem because of persecution. They landed in worse persecution. Now it's not just the Jews beating on them. The Gentiles are getting in on it. And, and, and it's so discouraging to the church that now they're turning their guns on each other as believers. And I believe he, he unpacks what he says here in the first three chapters in order for him to get to chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 4, where he talks about wisdom from above. He, everything he says before that, he's preparing for that. And after he says 3.13 to 4.4, 4, then he starts signing off the rest of the epistle. It's just a beautiful shape. But right here at the beginning, I love what he does. He says, we need to talk about your heart. You want to talk about what you're suffering, and that's important, and understand what God's doing in your suffering. But even more, look what God's doing in your heart through your suffering and how there's an opportunity for you to change. And it's that context we drop down to verse, uh, let's start with verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And pay special attention to verse 14 and 15. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. This is it. Whatever, whatever we just read... It's timeless. And if you ever get away, get off the path of the simplicity of these two verses we just read, he's warning you, don't get off this path. Don't be deceived. It always comes back to this. Don't blame God. Don't blame the people that are beating up on you, like the Jews and the Gentiles. Your worst problem is coming from your heart. What's going on in your heart? The persecution is merely bringing out of your heart what was already there. It's important for us as believers to, to never forget the pit that we have been rescued from. You know that? I mean, remember your heart when the gospel wasn't controlling it? Before you were rescued? I like the wording of Psalm 42. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and make, made my footsteps firm. But that wasn't a salvation to non-conflict with your heart. That was in equipping you, bringing you to life for the war. For the war. Same one who wrote Romans 1, who's writing about the righteousness of God and tells us how it's by faith in chapter 3, gets to chapter 7, and Paul's now looking at his own heart after being in the ministry 25 years. And he says, wretched man that I am. There's a fight and it's on right now. So I like what James does in, his, in, in chapter uh, 1, verses 14 and 15. He uses two illustrations to identify one process. 
He uses the illustration of fishing. That's in verse 14. It says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed. Moo talks about this as being outdoorsman language, and I like that. And then he uses another illustration, and it's the illustration of a life cycle from conception to death. I'm going to go back to that fishing illustration, because Pearson Johnson messed my life up. I grew up in this area and up in Clarkston, Detroit area in Clarkston, fishing. I lived on a pond, I lived on a lake, and then I got away from fishing when I went to college, in, in 1985 to be exact. I just got busy and I wasn't around water. And then I was, I was out of fishing for maybe 15 years or so, and in and, and the Lord's providence, Tracy invited me to come up to do a retreat for you guys, a men's retreat or something at Kobiak, or a family camp or something. And and early one morning, Pearson says, you want to go fishing? I'm like, man, I haven't done that in forever. How many of you have been to Camp Kobiak? And a couple of you? Okay, that little lake. I worked at Camp Kobiak for two summers when I was in college. It's where my wife and I got together, the whole deal. And, uh, and I only swam in that lake and chased junior campers out of the lake who were peeing in it. You know, that, that was my relationship with that lake. That's it. And then Pearson says, you ever fished this lake? I'm like, never. He says, meet me some early time in the morning. The next morning, we'll get in the boat. And he says, this is what you got to use. And they were little rubber brown worms. Not the big wacky worm stuff now. It was just a little worm. Um, rubber. It wasn't even the size of, a, of an earthworm. had a little propeller on it. And, and, uh, and he took me all the way across the lake. And he says, watch this, watch this. And, and he's, there's willows, I think, hanging down over the water there around the perimeter of that lake. And, and as you throw that that worm in and just bring it across the bottom. I kid you not, it's like the largemouth bass were fighting over it. <laughs> it was great fishing. And, uh, and you know, I tried it, same, same lure, and, and we had a great morning. I had a great time, and I actually am way back into fishing now, actually too much into fishing now. It's a distraction, but, um, so I blame that on you, Pearson. But here's the deal. What, were we, what was Pearson doing? What was Pearson doing? Well, he had a fake worm with a, uh, uh, some sort of a shiny repeller on it or, or something, a spoon. And, and, and he knew the largemouth bass were in shallow early in the morning under the overhang of a willow tree. I have a question for you. Is that, is that bass underneath there, that 15-inch bass, does he have what he needs where he is there? He's got everything he needs. He's in shallow, but he's under the twigs, He's got bugs falling off that tree all morning long, all day long. And you know, he's hard to spot. I mean, he's in a good hiding place. He has everything he needs for nutrition. He doesn't need anything else to survive and thrive. But Pearson's mission is to say, I got something better for you. Follow this worm out into the open water and then bite it. And so what you do is you draw him out and entice him. That's the language here. Uh, that you're seeing in James chapter 1. Um, for believers, uh, this is going to be, I think, eye-opening and helpful no matter what the sexual uh, or unique temptation is that we're looking at. I want to illustrate it with, with an arrow here. This is helpful for me. It's an arrow that is, is showing a downward tra- trajectory. And I want to argue with you as we get into this that this is timeless. It's timeless and it's limitless as far as the human heart. Whatever new sins are, in, are invented in the future with technology or, or, or substance or anything like that, it's going to fit in here. This covers all the old ones. I think you can see this illustrated in Genesis 3, and you're going to see it generated or, or followed in the millennium uh, when Satan finds 
a following for his final rebellion. It's all here. This is timeless and limitless. Where does it start? Well, according to James, it starts with what I'm going to call dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. That's at the beginning of verse 14 where it says, Every man is drawn away and enticed, drawn away and enticed, meaning that wherever you are right now, you have all you need to survive and thrive in Christ. If you're a Christian, we're talking about Christians in this workshop. You have all that you need, but your flesh will do this kind of rebellion to you. It's going to say, it can be better though. What you have in Jesus to, th- to thrive and survive is good, but there's something better. Something more instant, something more tangibly satisfying. See, what your heart has to do, and, and the enemy is very much aware of this whole program too, of the human heart, the fallen heart, is it has to get you, first of all, dissatisfied with who you are and what you have in Christ, your union with Christ. It's where it always starts, dissatisfaction. Where does it go from there? Well, James is going to tell us it goes to what we'll call substitution. And by the way, when we look at um, dissatisfaction, I want to remind you of uh, um, what Kent Hughes used to say in his book, uh, Disciplines of a Godly Man, still says it. He says, God disappears to lust-glazed eyes. Interesting. And in that same chapter, Hughes quotes Bonhoeffer, who says, Satan does not fill us with hatred of God when we sin. He fills us with forgetfulness of God. Substitution. And by the way, whenever you create a vacuum, a vacuum will always be filled, right? You scientists out there? And that's where substitution comes from. Look at verse 14 again. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, there, 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 there's action taken on that lust, and that's what I'm calling substitution. I want to suggest this to you. If dissatisfaction is what jolts our affections and loyalty in those moments away from Jesus... Whatever we fill that with, whatever the substitution's going to be, is an act of worship. You and I, I'm yelling, and I was just gesturing big, sorry. You and I are never not worshiping. We don't take a break from it, say, I'm going to stop worshiping and I'm going to sin. We're still worshiping as we go on this downward trajectory. And uh, I like what uh, um, Jim Berg uh, says. He says in his book, Change Into His Image, he says... uh, We are drawn away and enticed by our own unique desires. This is important, especially if we're going to transfer this in general terms over to the problem of SSA. Your own unique desires, your hideous. We get our get our word idiosyncrasy type thing with that. It's 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 there there are some things it's okay for us to be different. You struggle with stuff that I just don't understand. It's not a draw to me. I struggle with 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 desires that you were just like, really? You know, um, and, and every Christian is going to have a uniqueness to them in that. Um, sin that so easily besets us. Uh, we got a lot of language in the New Testament that's going to talk that your heart is unique. And, you know, for my dad, my dad professed to be a believer. He, uh, he was also, uh, um, I'm going to use a biblical word, drunkard. And he was a great dad. And, and my rebellion as a teenager was uh, everyone wanted me to drink. My cousins, my dad, everyone wanted me to get into that. And, and the refrigerator was downstairs on a lower level with me in my bedroom, and I had no accountability. But part of my rebellion, as I watched alcohol control my dad, a very smart man, part of my rebellion was, was the gospel and not drinking. Okay? Um, I didn't, 
understand that, and I was even going to not even um, work towards it. I was, I, was, I was rebelling against that. Um, but you know what? I struggle with some things that I know my dad never struggled with. You have your struggles. Because wherever we go with this conversation as we try to help people with same-sex attraction that are in our churches, you're going to be you're going to be calling on them to engage in a battle with an intensity that's amazing. Don't call them to a battle like that if you're not fighting with the same intensity whatever your sin is. You say, well, it's not SSA. Be careful, you're getting close to the Pharisee thing now. Okay, you're going to have to fight your lust for greed or control or your body image just as hard as someone that struggles with substance abuse, same-sex attraction, cutting. That's not one that I, I don't like pain. I don't like the dentist. Um, so I don't relate to that. But you know what? I, if I'm working with someone who's into self-harm, I'm calling them to a war to fight and sweat like I am against what I have to fight against. All right? Um, when the substitution happens, I think of Jeremiah 2, verses 11 through 13, talking about the nation. And we read, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be hor- horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. Listen to this. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. It produces the waters. And they have cut for themselves cisterns, and those are broken cisterns. They can't even hold water. They can't produce it or hold it. So when we go from dissatisfaction... I don't have what I need for thriving and surviving in Christ. I want something more in the now that I can feel, experience. I'm worshiping. For some people, that's indulging in same-sex attraction, uh, pornography, fantasizing, or actually indulging. All right? Um, where does that lead to? Well, that, in whatever sin we're talking about, leads to what we'll call gratification. I need you to read verse 15 real carefully with me. Verse 15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And watch the wording of the next phrase. And sin when it is, and what do you have in your Bible? What does it say? What's the next word? When it is what? When it's fully grown. The NASB guys out there have accomplished, I think, right? What what does that word accomplished or fully grown communicate to us? Does that communicate a curiosity? No. That word clearly communicates that there has been the passing of time in this gratification. There has been repetition over that time. And listen, there's even been a proficiency developed because of the time and the repetition. Sin, when it is finished. What is that? It's gratification. That's going all out and the hesitations are gone. This loop is easier to run now, and I'm just gratifying. Where does that lead out? And by the way, you're training your heart. You're discipling your heart with gratification, not towards Christ-likeness, but towards sin. Remember what Paul said in Romans 6, 19? He said, you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4, 7, to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We also discipline ourselves for the purpose of ungodliness. Where does that lead? I'm going to use the word devastation. Okay? Devastation. What do you mean by devastation? Well, 
It says here in verse 15, and sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. So we have to, are we, just, are we talking physical death here? Maybe. Um, it, it could be the result of their behavior in their bodies, Paul would talk about. Are we talking about a spiritual death? Well, I hold that if someone's truly regenerated, they can't be de-regenerated. Um, but it also might reveal that they were never really regenerated. We have that possibility. Um, I want to suggest that you consider James, who's writing to believers. Uh, he might be considering, at the very least, a practical death. You see, what do you mean by that? I'm going to change authors on you, go from James to Paul. But Paul talked in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6, just trying to do the analogy of Scripture here. Um, he talked about a living death, um, which surely would come before the physical death in many cases. He says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 6, talking about sensual widows, he says, she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Now, you know, in my soteriology, I'm, I, I have a, uh, a reformed leaning, no doubt. And, and I don't mind talking about perseverance at all. I think it's very important in this. And you look at someone's life and their trajectory, is, is it demonstrating perseverance or no life at all? We can have that conversation. But I, I really think, though, when people want help with this, like this girl I just read the, the letter, to from, uh, letter from to Peter Hubbard, they're hovering here sometimes. They're like, I know I'm running a lap here that's not good. And I'm afraid. Or I've crossed over to this line and it's cold here. It's alone. I'm with a ton of people just like me. And I'm, I'm walking with a parade of zombies. And, uh, and they need help. This right here is timeless and limitless. McDonald writes, to be out of fellowship with God as a Christian is for a Christian a form of living death. And I think he's right. So I want you to look at your notes there or up here at the screen. I want to make a couple of observations here. I think I have these in your notes. A couple of observations as you look at this timeless and limitless process. Number one, this process is timeless and predictable. It's timeless and predictable. We see it in the garden. I think you can see this all the way in Genesis 3. I think you can see this in the rebellion at the end of the millennium. I think you see efforts at this. Do you not see this? Can you not hear this with Satan tempting our Lord in the wilderness? I think that we can see it as we look at the issue of pornography. I think we can see this when we look at the issue of the whole Romans 1 cultural tailspin. Um... I think it's timeless and predictable, so I've been saying that. Another observation is this. It moves from the unseen to the seen, right? Right up here, you have, this, is the, this is the realm of the heart. And as both Dr. Dorn and Dr. Reju said in their messages already today, what's going on up here doesn't just suddenly start here. There has been a dissatisfaction with who we are in Christ, what we have to thrive and survive in our union with Him, and we have thought up a substitution that we have now, and once we cross this line, it's becoming more and more evident. We're gratifying it, and the passing of time has started, and the learning of proficiency has started. It moves from the unseen to the seeing, or from heart 
to habit. Just write down Luke 6, 43 to 45 for your reference. Number three, I think we would say, oops, we've got a little Heather. It's deadly. Number three, it is deadly. It ends with death. You say, oh, how sure is it that it ends as death? As sure as, as um, an embryo goes through the life cycle and faces the grave. I had a man in our church die two nights ago at St. Joseph Hospital. Met with his family yesterday at 5, and I'm going to bury him Saturday. 78 years old. And uh, um, that's, that's what happens. Unless the Lord comes for the church, we're doing this a lot, and we'll take our turn. Okay? It's as sure as a life cycle. As a matter of fact, let me, let me quote again under number three, Jim Berg in his book, Change into His Image, he makes this statement on page 42. The toxicity of the human heart is so potent that when God wants to judge a man, all he has to do is turn that man over to his own heart. That's it. Number four, the point of decision really only lasts the first three. Uh, dissatisfaction or satisfaction is a decision of the heart. Substitution is a decision of the heart. To stay with it and become proficient with it is a decision of the heart. The point of decision only lasts for the first three steps. Paul wrote in Romans 8.13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Number five, each lap gets easier. As you run this course, it gets easier and easier and easier. Your conscience gets muted and muted and muted. Muscle memory works not just towards righteousness, but also towards unrighteousness. Number six, the process is unique for each individual. It really is. I mean, going back to me and Huffstutler, or me and Pearson, or anyone else, um, what we're struggling with here, our own unique sins are going to be unique. And so... What this will look like will be unique for you and for me and for you. But it's still going to run the same course. But what it looks like, how long it takes, is going to be unique. And number seven, if you see the problem, look at this. The solution to this is in the problem. The solution is in the problem. I don't do a lot of puzzles. I do confess, I did something earlier this week at 10 o'clock at night I hadn't done in nine months. I played Angry Birds. My wife was counseling someone on the phone. I couldn't go to bed because she was using the bedroom up there, so I didn't want to interrupt. So, um, you know, I I, I didn't want to watch the Pistons. So, (laughs) so I did Angry, and it was fun. Other than I don't do a lot of games like that. I'd rather read or look at knife magazines or some pocket knife magazines. But um, there is one kind of puzzle I do enjoy when I'm on a plane for some reason. I'll, I'll do it in the magazine or I'll do it on my, my phone. I got it as an app and it's Sudoku. I'm not a scientist or engineer. I'm not smart like that. But I, I, find, I find Sudoku fun. I can do the medium ones, working my way up. Well, If you know what Sudoku is, you have nine quadrants. or you, How many numbers do you have? I don't know how many boxes. You have, to find, you have nine quadrants and there's nine numbers in each quadrant. And they give you some numbers, and you have to figure out the rest. Now, you can look at that and say, I'm overwhelmed with the fact that so many of the numbers are missing. Okay, good. That's called a puzzle. But if you see that, you can see the solution with the numbers you're given. If you can see this problem, I think you're thinking ahead now in a helpful way of what James is communicating to us is the solution. What's the solution? I like to use a different arrow going up. It's only three parts. And the issue is this. It starts with, satisfaction. If the whole thing starts downward with being dissatisfied with who I am in Christ to thrive and survive, I need to start there 
being satisfied. And, 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 and here's the thing. The, the only way you can create faith and, and, and be remembered or, or, or be, be reminded as to how satisfied you have a right to be in Christ, you have to be in the Word. No Word, no faith, Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. There has to be satisfaction. You know, that little book, Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney, remember that old book? I love that book still. I don't know everything that's gone on. I love that book. And I love it in that book because he says, um, your union in Christ, your, uh, who you are in Christ, is something that you can sing. It's something that can take you through every day. We must feast on that. Not only are you satisfied, um, and well, let me just say this. One writer said, the only way to overcome the power of lust in our lives is by finding better promises. The key to holiness is satisfaction in God. Faith that he is more to be desired than anything the world has to offer. We're not just turning away from lust. We're turning toward true satisfaction and joy in God. Track through the Old Testament. Track through Isaiah. Uh, track through Jeremiah. Anytime our Lord confronts the idolatry of the nation of Israel, he doesn't just say, you abandoned me, and put the period there, does he? He doesn't say, you abandoned He says, you have abandoned me, and you've served Baal. You, you, you never set down God without picking up another one. And if you say, well, I'm not going to pick up any God, then, that's your, then you're God. You've picked up one. Um, so, satisfaction, and then followed by attention. What do you mean by attention? This is you being Mr. Bass at Kobiak's Lake. You know that worms are going to drop in the place where you have it really good in Christ. It's not if the worms are going to drop in to pull you out. They're coming. And this is why Paul will use language all the time of, of being vigilant. Peter's going to use that kind of language as well. Jesus is going to say, watch and pray. All right? And then where does attention lead out to? Just life, freedom. And you know what? You say, well, how many times do I have to go through this? Sometimes, some days, maybe 500. Because the worms are dropping in. You see the worm, you go to satisfaction. So, listen, we're talking about same-sex attraction. But this is how our hearts work for any kind of lust. And SSA doesn't get an exception to this. So this is where we're going to bring our counselees, and this is what I'm trying to teach our church family. Doug Moo says, Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to the temptation. When it comes to SSA, then, knowing this, what is the Christian's goal? What's the Christian's goal? A Christian is struggling with SSA. First of all, let me tell you what it is not. It is not reparative theology. Or therapy, excuse me. It's not reparative therapy. They don't need to be reparented. The goal is, if a guy's struggling with same-sex attraction, for example, is to make him heterosexual again. It's like the guy that, uh, true story, you might have read it in one of the books, a guy, a married man was struggling with heterosexual, or I'm sorry, homosexual attraction, same-sex attraction. And, and he was getting counsel, and he came in and told his pastor one day, I think I made progress. This is really working. I, I didn't think of men when I was with my family on vacation. I did see some beautiful women in bikinis at the beach. Well, we're still struggling, aren't we, right? The goal isn't just to make you like women now or for you to like, uh, it's not reparenting, it's not doing that, it's not getting married merely so that you can satisfy your own selfish desires within that marriage, 
Um, here's what Heath Lambert says. I like this. Reparative therapists believe that homosexuality is dangerous and at odds with human thriving. That is true, but it is not enough. We must also say that homosexuality is more than maladaptive. It is a sin against the living God. Failing to affirm this central truth undercuts repentance because there is no need for repentance where there is no sin. He's right. He's right. So our goal is not reparative therapy. And secondly, it's not behavioral modification. It's not behavior modification. We don't just say, hey, grit your teeth, man. Grit your teeth and just make it through the moments of temptation. Just, just, just clench your fist and win. And we'll talk about joy later. It's not that. Colossians 2.23 even warns us, doesn't it, that there are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Listen to Daniel Kirk and John Street again. By the way, those of you who were at the ACBC conference a week or so ago, Daniel Kirk was one of the plenary speakers. It was outstanding, his sermon. Listen to it. They write, uh, Biblical counselors know that the goal of ministry is not just behavioral change. Our aim is also to bring about significant change at the deepest level of a man's secret impulses and appetites as well. God wants something more for the homosexually inclined Christian than a life of tortured celibacy. He wants him to enjoy a life that is free from slavery to sinful desires. Cravings are not a secondary issue. They are primary because behavior is always the fruit of what we worship and desire. They're right. And again, I said this in my workshop earlier today. I don't know if you're in here. On this point, if I'm in charge for the day, I want all of you to get Jeremy Pierre's book, The Dynamic Heart, and read it and own it. I think what he said at the seminar here and what he says in that book is so, so helpful in understanding the heart and why we hold the heart responsible. So if that's not the answer, what is the answer? The answer is progressive sanctification. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. Put all, and by the way, when you go to Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, um, I, I think that we need to go all the way back to verse 17 and not start in verse 22. 17 is going to remind you what you weren't and then what happened when you learned Christ, when you were saved. And now these realities in verses 22, put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, verses 22, 23, and 24. Those are not just possibilities for you as a Christian. They are realities and therefore responsibilities. And like a, I like to, uh, Jim Berg's book. And st- I use the three R's. Jim Berg calls us mortification of the flesh, meditation on the word, manifestation of Christ-likeness, whatever you like. I like short words with the same letter. Um, so this is something that... Um, we can have a whole workshop on. Um, if, if I, I'm going to give you some book re, um, recommendations, but if you had the Pierre book and the and the the uh, Berg book that I've mentioned, you'll be in good shape. A new book just came out from Rob Green and two other profs, I think, connected with Southern Seminary, and I just got a desk copy, and I can't remember the name of it. And, and, and you don't have that name, okay? Um, if we find that name, I'll bring it up to you. It's a new book, and it looks to be fantastic on teaching you the basics of repent, renew, replace. Repent means not just repent of the behavior. Now, I need you to track with me on this. I'm watching the clock, but I need to sink here for just a moment because this is a point of debate in biblical counseling. What do you repent of if you struggle with same-sex attraction? 
Do you repent of only the behavior or do you also have to repent of the temptation? Um, it's, it's an interesting discussion that when I first came into it, um, I, uh, I was a little resistant to where it was going, and then it was Heath Lambert that helped me land well on it. Um, he's going to argue that you do repent of the temptation itself, too. Now, my objection to that was like, well, what are you supposed to do? You're walking down the road all the time, and your eyes are always closed, and you're walking into buildings and lampposts because you're always repenting. Sometimes you have to repent a hundred times a day, don't you? And, 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 and it was more of a practical objection, but I, I believe he's right now. I, I, I really do. De Young puts it this way, As for the particularities of same-sex attraction, even unwanted homosexual desires are disordered, and if the desire is tantamount to lustful intent, then those desires are sinful. I agree with that. What are we going to do with repent? The language I choose to use is the language from the Sermon on the Mount, where our Lord says, blessed are those that mourn. They mourn the fact that there is a a, a spiritual poverty to them, even as Paul says, 25 years into into the ministry. And there's a regret, there's a mourning, there's a crying out, Lord, I still, I, I still need to be defined and covered by an alien righteousness. Because this is me at my best with the wind of my back coasting downhill. So I, I use the word mourning and confessing that to the Lord. Again, Psalm Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of this death? So that's repentance. Renew is not just a renewal um, of what's wrong, but what needs to be right. And if you're going to take someone that has been, if you remember the downward arrows, you're going to take someone that has allowed the passing of time to go and and repetition and a proficiency to be developed. Now you're going to be with with God's word, getting them to think and understand that they they can't continue in that direction and they must pull back towards Christ-likeness. And that's going to be unfamiliar to them. They haven't been practicing that. There's not a proficiency right now for that, and it's going to have to only come as faith is built with exposure to the Word of God, specific passages. Now you say, well, okay, I just take those people, when it comes to renewing the mind, I just take them to the passages on homosexuality, and we're going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, we're going to go to Corinth, and, and we're, going to, we're going to get them there. Okay? No, 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 no. I always encourage the three Gs. Start with God. Before you start with SSA, go back and study God. Study His, his perfections. Study his mercy, his attributes. Be overwhelmed with God. Jerry Bridges read Stephen Charnock's book, um, The Existence and Attributes of God, and he says he couldn't read a page of, of the chapter on holiness before he was closing the book and he was on his face again. And he, he couldn't get off his face every time he tried to read. And the end of that whole process was him writing the book that you've all read, The Pursuit of Holiness. Be blown away with who God is. And then go to the second G with your work with these people. Get them overwhelmed with God, and then... Take him to the gospel, that this God made the effort to be reconciled to me. And here's where you preach the gospel over and over. What's the third G? Then go to some of these texts on purity and help. We, we, we want to start with that last G of growth passages first. Go with God and gospel first. Because all those growth passages are an outflow of who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. Okay, just real quickly. Um, also, the Christian's goal is Christ-likeness. 
It's Christ-likeness. This is a model we are developing at our church that every believer that is growing in Christ-centered doctrine and a Christ-word passion will grow up towards God as a worshiper, towards all people as a servant, towards the unsaved as a witness, and towards those within their reach as a discipler. That's just a rubric we're developing at our church, um, and that's the way I visually show my church Christ-likeness, and we're trying to grow in that together. So that's why that visual is up there. My church would have recognized that. We need to finish here. Um, the anchoring realities. Okay, this is renewing your mind st- stuff that you have to help these folks with. Um, this is letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This is, um, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind stuff. A, a, a couple of things. Letter A, the battle is uniquely personal. And just hang on to what you saw in James 1.14 even if you're struggling with, same, with, with, with the same sinful desires, they differ regarding triggers, regarding experiences, regarding cultures and social constructs. doesn't change the fact that you have unique things you're going to fight. I, as Pastor Dorn said, I wish it was just as easy as going forward at the campfire, confessing, going home. No, that's not the, that's not the end of the problem. It's the beginning of the fight. And your hardest days are likely in front of you. Your hardest days. Um, number two, the battle, or letter B, the battle is going to be constant. It's going to be constant. Listen to St. Augustine. If you consent to evil desires and haven't struggled against them, you will have to bewail your defeat. And I hope you will bewail it, or you may lose all sense of sorrow. What we long for, of course, is that these evil desires should not even well up from our flesh, but as long as we are living here, we are unable to bring this about. Lambert directed my attention to that quote. I think here that you, it's under letter B that you have to just live in the Beatitudes. I really believe that. Live in what it means to be poor in spirit, mourning that. Being a gentle person because of that. Hungering and thirsting for an alien righteousness. Being merciful to others. Being pure. Being a peacemaker. Being persecuted. And then rinse and repeat. Number three, or letter C, the battle is not your identity. You got that? Your identity is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In a life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John Street puts it this way. They have been convinced by their own fruitless struggle with their sexual weakness or by the world's relentless drumbeat that they are genetically hardwired this way and cannot change. Of course, this is a cultural lie and it robs them of hope. And then he says this. Who they are in Christ must be the planet around which all their thoughts and actions orbit. This is more than just a metaphor. It has to do with how Christians view themselves as undeserving sinners who enjoy the gracious provisions and righteousness of Christ in order to have full acceptance with God the Father. Amen to that. And then, uh, oh boy, we've got to finish up here. Letter D, the goal is not perfection. I don't want to be trite, but it's, it's direction. 2 Timothy 4, 7, I've fought the good fight, I've finished, I've kept. You know the tenses there. He's saying, I'm, I'm fighting and running up to, well, this very moment. The help, letter E, the help is resurrection power, Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give you to your, listen, your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. At the very beachhead that this kind of sin gets in, 
you have resurrection power at work there, Ephesians 1. Letter F, the journey is also a school. The journey is also a school. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. I want you to know the, the Father of mercies, the God of, or the, the Father of mercy, the God of all comfort. And he, and he's gonna comfort us in all our afflictions so that we can comfort others with the same comfort wherewith we are comforted of Him. In other words, take notes as you go through this in your struggle with SSA so that you can help others. And letter G, the impact creates an eschatological yearning. You know? Isn't it true? Someone who's struggling with it say, really? For years? I, I, it just makes me hungry for home. Romans 8.23, we eagerly await our adoption as sons. Again, I want to let, finish with this quote by Sam Albury again. And he's one that struggles with it. We continue our struggle with sin. Temptation does not cease. The full healing and deliverance we long for are not promised this side of the new creation. We have tasted our sonship, and therefore we long for it in all its fullness, like being given a spoonful of a delicious meal that is being prepared for you and realizing at once just how hungry you are and how wonderful it will be to sit down at the table and eat your full. I appreciate his, his testimony. So what do we do with this? We have to get our church engaged in this conversation. We absolutely have to. Again, Sam Albury, and we're finished. Yeah. Is God anti-gay? No. Well, that's one of those things I want to nuance, but let me give you his whole quote here. But he is against all who, of us who are by nature, uh, but he is against who all of us are by nature, as those living apart from him and for ourselves. There's your nuance. He's anti that guy, whatever that guy looks like in each of our lives. But because he is bigger than us, better than us, and able to do these things in ways we would struggle to, God loves that guy too, loves him enough to carry his burden, take his place, clean him up, make him whole, and unite him forever to himself. Well, I've given you some uh, recommended reading down here. If I, if I told you to just buy two books, it would be Transforming Homosexuality by Lambert and Burke, and Walker's book, God and the Transgender debate. Um, The others are good, but I'd start there if I were you. Please just have the conversation. Have the conversation in your church and give hope to these folks. You've got to run to your next one. But we only went four minutes over because we had five minutes late start, right? You are dismissed. The Lord bless you.